The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, a senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, we're going to pick up our discussion on the Belt and Road issue that we've really brought up over the past couple of weeks. And the idea here is to extend the conversation from the summit that occurred in Beijing, where lots of deals were signed, and it brought a lot more attention to what Xi Jinping wants to do with the Belt and Road. And apparently what he's trying to do is to get this thing back on track. Now, one of the issues that uh, President Xi raised was he wants to address the issue of corruption in the Belt and Road. And that's something that has been a theme over the past couple of years. It's also been one of the major areas of attack that the United States and critics of the Belt and Road uh, who say that it really is not healthy and is leading towards what they call as predatory lending, debt trap diplomacy, and all these various attacks on the Chinese for what they're doing by loading up developing countries with massive amounts of debt. And then according to the United States, the idea here is that they're going to leverage that indebtedness for strategic power. Now, Cobus, it's interesting because over the past week since the summit, a very interesting essay came out by Professor Deborah Braudigam, who's the director of the China-Africa Research Initiative at Johns Hopkins University. And she basically came out flat out and said, China is not the world's loan shark. That was the name of the article. And she really debunked this debt trap diplomacy narrative. So it really throws into question, you know, what is going on right now? Yes. Yeah, so, so you, on the one hand, you have this narrative that China is is using debt in a strategic way to to essentially control small countries, um, and then critics like like um, Deborah Brautingham and and us, um, you have pointed out that actually no, that's not that's not what what's happening, and that the examples of of for example, state assets being seized because of bad debt. Is, uh, um, there's actually very few of, of those examples um, available to us. But then the next question becomes, so what is it then? You know, are we saying that that the, the BRI is completely A-OK, that there's no problems with debt? Um, or if there are problems with debt, what are those problems exactly? Um, you know, so, so it, it feels like there's a, a kind of a, a, an additional conversation that needs to take place after refuting the debt trap narrative. It's interesting you bring up the concept of conversations because it really does sound like there are very, very different conversations going on between African leaders uh, and their Chinese counterparts, between African leaders and their constituents, and between the rest of the world, particularly the United States, the IMF, and European countries, all on this issue of debt. Now, just to give you a little flavor of the intensity with which the United States is bringing to this issue... Uh, there was an interview that uh, CNN did with Rear Admiral Heidi Berg, who's the director of intelligence in the U.S. Africa Command. And we're going to play a little bit of sound for you because I think it just gives you a taste of how intense and persistent the United States is in raising the question of the combination of debt, of Chinese aggressiveness, and the issue of sovereignty. Let's take a listen. 
seen the, the investment, the level of investment, the level of influence that, uh, that China has been able to achieve. There's been raising awareness of the predatory lending practices that are in place, the, the debt burdens that can undermine sovereignty. So the United States makes a very, very strong case that it is debt trap diplomacy. That is the nature of what the Belt and Road is and underlying what China's agenda is in the developing world. We want to give you a different perspective, though, on this. And, and it's really great, an opportunity for us to be able to find voices from a new generation of, of policy you know, analysts and thinkers. And so we found uh, this great essay called China's Debt Diplomacy is a Misnomer. Call it Crony Diplomacy. And it was written by Marc Acapinier, who is formerly of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He recently just left there to take on an exciting new job, which unfortunately I can't tell you about now, but we'll be able to tell you about in a few weeks. Uh, but when he was at CSIS, uh, he was following Chinese geopolitical and economic engagement throughout Eurasia and specifically on the Belt and Road. He's also a member of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations and spent a few years back in China where he was teaching English and was a lecturer at Baoshan University in Yunnan province. So has some experience working in the think tank circle in Washington, also in Beijing. And uh, one little very fun fact here, he's also a certified IRS tax preparer. So if you're an American, Mark is your guy to help you out with your taxes. A very good morning to you from Washington, Mark. We're thrilled to have you on the show. Well, it's an honor to be here with you today and to be on the show. I've listened to you all for um, quite some time, so I'm happy to speak on this topic. Well, it's fantastic to have you in part because one of the things that we've been trying to do on the show is to find younger, a new generation of, of policy analysts who give a different take. And that's why I thought your essay on uh, forget debt diplomacy, call it crony diplomacy, which was really your, uh, you know, the case that you make. So why don't we kind of just, before we get too deep into it, give us a very brief overview of the message you were trying to convey in this essay and why you think maybe that the United States leadership has it wrong in their assessment of what the Belt and Road is and what the Chinese are doing in places like Africa. Of course. So I'm coming from the background of being exposed to a narrative that the U.S. has relied on to characterize Chinese engagement abroad. And essentially, that narrative is um, China's um, investment being used to bankrupt recipient nations or partner nations with unsustainable debt and then demanding steep concessions as part of the debt relief. And so is viewing Chinese investment or unsustainable investment as a geopolitical, geostrategic tool. Um, I'm coming from um, the angle that this is a caricature of what is actually happening on the ground and that is placing malintentions on a wide array of activities that I don't believe is constructive to characterize as debt diplomacy. I call it crony diplomacy for the reasons that I believe Chinese investment or its strategy is motivated by profit-seeking behavior um, and economic considerations, and that can lead to a combination of toxic or bad practices that result in the uneven um, development that you see where you have some uh, BRI products really being successful and um, adding to the economic development of countries. And you see some dead projects that don't really uh, accomplish what they set out to accomplish. 
So let's break it down. Um, when you, you know, when we talk about debt type diplomacy, generally we we talk about the centrally controlled, centrally orchestrated use of debt to essentially entrap um, poor countries, and then once they can't pay their, their loans, then China gains some kind of leverage over them. Um, what do you mean specifically with crony diplomacy? You know, uh, who, who are the main actors in, in that, if if not this kind of idea of a cent- everything being centrally controlled by the Chinese government? That's a fascinating question. I would caveat um, my response that I always find it interesting when people talk about um, China as a threat, um, and they speak about BRI being something that we have to pay attention to. They always they always talk about um, China being a very tightly controlled, centralized um, force to be reckoned with. And then when they talk about uh, concerns that BRI is failing and that um, uh, it's not living up to its promise, they talk about um, China not being able to. Uh, to coordinate among the many actors. And so I think there is a history of people employing narratives that um, sort of suit their interests at the time. Where I'm coming from is I I define the key actors as state-owned enterprises. So big um, state-owned firms, um, big contractors that pretty much are the implementers of uh, Xi Jinping's vision abroad. Um, these are the firms that are being funded and receiving um, investment um, and uh, financial instruments uh, from the Chinese policy banks. They're the ones that are and have been abroad in sub-Saharan Africa and Asia. Um, and they're the ones that are sort of interpreting um, Belt and Road on the ground. So when I talk about corny diplomacy and who's sort of employing it, I'm specifically mentioning these large state-owned enterprises that are exploiting and taking advantage of um, uh, China's, you know, going out or going global policy 2.0, which I uh, define as, you know, China's Belt and Road Initiative. You really did not mince words in your essay. I mean, let me just, you know, put a, give people a little flavor of what you wrote. You said there's little evidence that actually suggests that Beijing coordinates a unified strategy to lure the developing world into unsustainable debt. Now, that that phrase right there really goes at the heart of the U.S. allegation against the Chinese. Uh, the, the U.S. really make this to be a political and strategic initiative from the Chinese, and you're you're attacking that right there. What you said is, instead of a state-led strategy... Chinese firms motivated by profit and abetted by a toxic combination of bureaucratic disorganization, incompetence, and negligence at the state level have exploited poor nations which are dependent on cheap and sometimes bad loans. Explain that. So in the U.S., um, when we talk about debt diplomacy, we utilize uh, some of the same core examples. And so a lot of times, Sri Lanka's having to port is employed um, as uh, as evidence to showcase, um, you know, China's bad investments and um, the concerns that it's luring countries into, you know, debt traps. But the evidence shows that besides, you know, Hematoda Sri Lanka port, there's very few examples displaying and demonstrating a case where China has seized um, assets abroad. There's not very few examples. Deborah Braudigam and others and us, there are no other examples as far as we know. 
Yes. Um, I would say there's no other examples as well, but people talk about concerns. Um, like Mombasa's uh, point in Kenya was something that people were following um, and eventually was debunked. Um, so I have not seen any other examples other than Sri Lanka's um, Habitat Report. And what I also see is that VRI is a vision. Um, it's not necessarily an initiative in the same way that the U.S. and Western countries create and, and curate policies. It's an adaptive vision that is adjusting itself over time, that rhetoric and the policies are being rehabilitated given, you know, this international uh, pushback and resistance you find from many countries. And so because of that, you see cases of China renegotiating the terms of loans, um, forgiving debt by uh, some countries. I know that recently um, Zimbabwe and and Cameroon were, were countries that have um, had their debt renegotiated. So in in some ways, the caricature of debt diplomacy does not take into account the ways that China has been trying to court um, existing Belt and Road recipient countries um, and to alleviate some of their um, concerns for um, unsustainable amounts of debt for these projects. Let's look at the side of the African governments or then the, you know, the other BRI partner governments. Um, you know, one of the big criticisms of debt trap diplomacy has been that, of the, the narrative of debt trap diplomacy, has been that um, it completely discounts the agency of of African governments um, and essentially, you know, portray them as being complete pushovers, um, you know, who are who are in kind of enthralled to to this Chinese power. Um, in your article, you you show that in a lot of cases they really really lack um, capacity, um, to the extent that you know that really really necessary um, feasibility studies and also economic impact studies just don't get done. And so there, it's very easy for for um, companies who are in it to, to, to escape a very tough, you know, competitive environment in China to do more business overseas, but then also who, who have access to relatively easy financing can then convince them that a project is actually will actually be more economically beneficial than it actually is and that they frequently need a more expensive version when a cheaper version would have been just as, just as good. Um, you know, kind of why why is it so easy to convince these governments of of these fallacies? Um, and you know, why why are we looking at a situation where the governments have such low capacity to actually check for themselves? That's a very fascinating question. I would say that agency operates in multiple fashions. So I think, in some ways, when you talk about um, the lack of feasibility or safeguards that happen in um, the Paris Club or, or, or Western financial um, institutions, um, African leaders are making sometimes active decisions when courting Chinese contractors or, or Chinese partners because they know that um, the ease of doing business when there's less um, procedures and processes involved might be beneficial uh, to them in the short term, the long term, depending on what their goals are. And so you have Chinese contractors that have been on the continent for a while, building projects, already have pre-existing relationships with um, certain individuals, and also come with financing that is less restrictive. And so I think in terms of agencies, it's very common for um, African leaders to want to um, 
prefer um, a different type of relationship in order to get projects um, facilitated on the ground and completed. So I think in one way, um, you have that happening and you have the Western response um, calling for greater transparency and you have a discussion of um, improving higher standards of conduct um, so that you have cases where contractors and companies are working and operating on the same set of rules. And so I think that is a form of legitimate concerns that the U.S. and other nations have brought, that you have two set of standards and you have African nations pretty much determining which standards they want to um, buy into and which is more convenient. So I think in terms of agency, we have to remember that a lot of African nations sort of know their options and they know the alternatives and they're choosing between what they prefer um, versus um, what's easier for them to, to get their job and products done. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa Channel Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at Wits China Africa or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. You know, Mark, you've done what I think is the impossible, where you've managed to put U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, U.S. National Security Advisor John Bolton, and Xi Jinping all on the same side of an issue. (laughs) I don't think I've ever seen this before. So here's the thing, because both Pompeo and Bolton have really brought up the themes of crony capitalism, of corruption, and and bribery, and and a lot of the themes you brought up. And at the same time, Xi Jinping at the Belt and Road Summit, he's talked about, you know, weeding out corruption out of Belt and Road, cleaning it up, making it more sustainable. And that is remarkable that corruption seems to be something that they all seem to agree on. That's probably about as far as it goes there. But just to give you a flavor, let's take everybody back to last December, December 13th at the Heritage Foundation in Washington, when John Bolton, U.S. National Security Advisor, laid out what was it, Prosper Africa? That's the new, yeah, that was the American strategy. We haven't heard much about it since then. But uh, here is a quote from him, then a little bit of sound that gives you, uh, you know, a little flavor, again, of what the United States' point of view is on this. And again, he touches on this question of bribery and corruption. China uses bribes, opaque agreements, and the strategic use of debt to hold states in Africa captive to Beijing's wishes and demands. Its investment ventures are riddled with corruption and do not meet the same environmental or ethical standards as U.S. developmental programs. So, Mark, are you basically aligning with the Trump administration on this by highlighting the corruption, or is the point that you're trying to make somehow different than what they're saying? I would say that I'm trying to make a different point. Um, I do acknowledge that there is legitimate criticism um, for what um, Bolton is calling out, that there is corruption, um, there are uh, cases, in many cases, of bribery. I mean, that's not something that's new with the Bolton Road Initiative. That's something that um, Chinese uh, contractors and firms uh, who have had history um, working with uh, partners abroad um, have had face, been facing for, for, for decades. Um, But I think we have to remember where this started from. And so 
This started from um, international pushback and resistance to Bolton Road since its conception in 2013. And I believe that because of that pushback and that resistance, you have um, Xi Jinping trying to rehabilitate the image, adopt a more gentle image for Belt and Road that is complying or um, addressing some of these concerns. I think where Bolton and I differ is that I don't believe that the core intention for some of these firms is to go into countries um, in order to bribe their way um, and use corruption um, to sort of induce countries to follow the will of China. I believe that state-owned enterprises are trying to take advantage of this windfall of investment and take advantage of Xi Jinping's um, enhanced foreign policy in order to um, establish and increase their market share, in order to establish their influence um, and to build their brand abroad. And so I think the the conversation on intentions is really important because I think that is going to d- differentiate what people are calling debt diplomacy and what people are calling crony diplomacy. If you believe that the state-owned enterprises are going in there and are operating solely as the arms of the Communist Party, then I think you align yourself more with believing in the narrative of debt diplomacy. If you believe that it's more nuanced um, and that it's possible to um, acknowledge some of the successes um, and failures that some of these uh, contractors have had, um, and you raise concerns with the presence, but realize that it's 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 not just um, all good or all bad, I think then you get into the, the crony diplomacy. Um, but the caveat, it is... Um, it is fair to raise that these state-owned enterprises are um, influenced and governed by the Communist Party, so they are in some ways an extension of, of um, you know, the CP- CCP's vision of how they see themselves um, developing abroad. But I think the conversation of att- intentions is really important to um, uplift because that's going to um, determine how you fall on the spectrum. If I get, uh, get your point correctly, um, you're essentially saying that the that, that there's a difference of order here. So rather than you know, if if the debt the debt trap narrative is that the Chinese government is using these companies to essentially entrap um, you know poor nations for strategic reasons, you're making the point that these these companies are acting independently in a kind of competitive marketplace where they are facing a lot of competition from other similar companies, and so they're trying to take to take advantage of a very of this moment where there's there's a lot of Belt and Road funding available, um, and just simply trying to maximize their own position rather than acting as a tool for for the the Chinese government. Am I am I getting that correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's along the lines of where I'm coming from. I think that I wouldn't say that they're acting entirely independently because these are state-owned enterprises that are governed and heavily influenced by the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and so in some ways, they are an extension of the Chinese government, an extension of the of, of China's vision abroad and how it wants to, you know, rehabilitate its image. But I want to sort of revisit the conversation that we had earlier about agency. I do think that many countries and many leaders, they understand the choices that they're making, 
And because of that, they understand the consequences of these choices. And so they're able to understand that when they're accepting investment and a partnership with some of these contractors in these state-owned enterprises, they understand what that fully entails. Um, And they're willing to accept that risk for whatever that project might be, whether it be a bridge or a road or an energy project. Um, But I do think that because of this international pushback and resistance by um, Western countries and also some recipient countries, there is this rehabilitation going on um, and uh, Belt and Road is adopting a a more gentle image um, in order to ease and alleviate some of the concerns that Spring brought up. But essentially, um, I do think that these companies are trying to seize on, you know, uh, the, you know, going out, the going global strategy that um, existed before Belt and Road. They're still trying to make a claim, um, increase um, their exposure abroad and really learn how to operate abroad. And they're doing so um, knowing that there are going to be some successes and some failures. So I don't, I don't think they're going in there fully um, in order to carry out the will of the Communist Party. I think it's more nuanced than what you see um, discussed in the U.S. So if your article was to have been translated in Chinese and published in the Chinese press here, which there's no way in God's green earth that that would ever happen, (laughs) but let's just say it is, let me try and channel some of the outrage and some of the response that I think (laughs) you would generate. (laughs) Um, You don't present much in the way of evidence. These are your assertions. This is, again, I'm trying to channel what Chinese reaction would be here, okay? You are accusing Chinese companies of corruption and of crony capitalism, when in fact there is a long history of Shell in Nigeria, of France-Afrique in Gabon and all over in the French, and Arriva in Niger, and the American companies like Walmart in places like Mexico. That is the nature of global capitalism in many respects, and especially on infrastructure projects. Name me an infrastructure project in a major, particularly in a developing country, but even in places like New York and London that didn't have corruption involved in it payoffs, deals. It's just the nature of what these things happen. And articles like yours, again, I'm channeling here, so please kind of take this in a grain of salt. The Chinese have built 3,116 projects in the developing world. What have the U.S. and what has the European Union done comparatively on infrastructure? Nothing over 50 years. This is what, this is, this is really a point that people hear, they get really pissed off when they hear this type of criticism. Because they say, we are out there doing it. Yes, there may be corruption. Yes, there may be problems. But all you guys do sitting in Washington at your think tanks is criticize, criticize, criticize. And we're on the front lines actually building ports, roads, hospitals, airports, bridges, and all those different things that for 50 to 60 years, all of the aid and development programs that the World Bank talked about doing in Africa, but never conveniently actually got around doing despite the fact that they paid a trillion dollars or whatever vast amounts of money into it. That is the outrage that you hear from young people here when they read criticism like what you've written. I'd be very interested to kind of get your take, and I'm not sure if you've ever had a chance to get response from Chinese stakeholders on your article, but how would you respond to that type of real frustration that they get when they when they hear things like what you've written? Mm-hmm. 
No, I think it's um, it's very valid that uh, to say that the China is not the only um, country that is facing these allegations and um, has firms and companies that are operating in a way that um, doesn't always uphold the highest standards. I would say that the difference between what China is doing and what uh, some U.S. companies have been alleged to do is that when Chinese companies are going abroad, uh, these are state-owned enterprises that are governed and that are influenced by the Chinese government. When Walmart is going abroad or Shell or you name it is operating in you know Nigeria or um, the DRC, they're not representing the interests or um, the will of the U.S. government. These are private entities that when they break laws and regulations, especially locally, there are ramifications legally um, and other forms of redress um, within the U.S., but also in that um, um, local environment. Chinese uh, state-owned enterprises are an extension of the government. And so when they are engaging in fraudulent activity or um, being impl- implicated in bribes or other uh, l- less than positive deals that is very much related to the Communist Party. So I think that's one big distinction is that when you have firms that are operating as an extension of the government and when you have firms that aren't, I, that's uh, a key, key point. And yes, I do think that is important to realize that there has been a lot of successes on the continent by um, you know Chinese firms and contractors that have been doing work for for decades, and so you know Belt and Road started in 2013, as we all know. But Chinese involvement in the continent, um, you know, spans uh, all the way to the Cold War era, and has been sort of consistently upticking since that time. Um, and because of that, you have recipient nations that can't really ignore their lore of um, investment from um, like Chinese um, enterprises. But I do think that one of the big differences is um, when you have companies that have a relationship with the Chinese government, it sort of blurs the line between what is really commercial um, interest and com- commercial diplomacy and what actually has geostrategic implications um, and uh, what is actually possibly the aims and ambition of a government um, as compared to um, a one-off or um, entity or a, um, an, um, a private company. The article is China's debt diplomacy is a misnomer. Call it crony diplomacy. It's in The Diplomat back on March 12th, written by Mark uh, Akapinine. I think I got your name there right. I'm, I'm not Nigerian names sometimes throw me for a curve, but uh, Mark, listen, we are so happy that you had the chance to talk to us. It's really a different point of view because we hear a lot about the debt trap diplomacy narrative coming out of Washington, but not necessarily on this crony diplomacy. And I thought that was very, very interesting. Uh, people, they can't follow you anymore at the Center for Strategic International Studies where you recently left. But if they want to follow what you're doing and your adventures, uh, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Of course. Um, so they can follow me in my LinkedIn, or uh, I meant to say my Twitter, <laughs> my Twitter account, which is uh, the uh, T H E 
then Ubong, U-B-O-N-G. So the Ubong is my Twitter handle. Um, they also could uh, go to my LinkedIn. It's all public as well. But my Twitter is going to be the best way uh, of following the content that I, um, I put out, as well as um, if they have any questions or comments um, about this episode or the article of The Diplomat, I'm, I welcome any uh, uh, feedback, especially, as you mentioned, it would be great to see what the average um, Chinese uh, you know, uh, citizen might have to say about my article. Yeah, I can tell you they wouldn't be too happy. <laughs> Let's just kind of say that. But uh, it is fantastic. Mark is a, a 2012 graduate of Duke University. And really, again, as I mentioned at the top of the show, part of a new generation of thinkers and part of the people, the group of people that we want to start engaging on the show who present a very different approach to thinking about global policy and the Chinese engagement in Africa than some of the old, his older peers, like from my generation, who think about it differently. So we're trying to bring some of these younger voices on. Mark, thank you so much for taking the time and getting up early for us in Washington, D.C. We really appreciate it. Thank you. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I uh, hope to keep in contact with both of you. Kobus, it's really refreshing to hear coming out of Washington beyond just Deborah Braudigan, because really, at the end of the day, she's one of the only ones who's been really at a high profile status promoting this idea of nuance in the debt trap diplomacy debate and really challenging the status quo on what American policy and policymakers are saying. So it's nice to see other people saying it. On the other hand, though, I while I was channeling the Chinese critics, I also was sympathizing with them for a little bit that there just feels to be nothing but negativity coming out about Belt and Road from places like London and, uh, well, actually not so much London, but certainly out of Washington and some of the Western capitals. And the sense of just like, give us a break. You know, we're trying it here. Now, again, I'm not trying to defend the Chinese here, but I do get that sense of frustration and exasperation. And so I would have liked in Mark's essay to see a little bit more evidence. He made a very compelling case, I felt, that it really is more about crony capitalism. It makes sense. I'd like to see some proof of which that was built upon, that argument, because I think that would be very, very compelling. Uh, but at the end of the day, I don't believe the U.S. debt trap diplomacy narrative. I agree with Deborah Braudigam. I agree with, with Mark and what he said, that it is it is really a political argument and not a an economic one. Uh, so to me, that nuance that he's trying to put into the debate is refreshing. I agree. I mean, for, for me, in reading him, uh, I thought that I think a lot, a lot of these um, debt trap narratives they they make the, they make a very basic mistake uh, that that you always have in in dealing with China is assuming that just because China looks like everything is being centrally controlled, everything is actually being centrally controlled. You know that there that there is that to underestimate the complexity of the number of Chinese actors in, involved and to, to overestimate how much control the, the Communist Party has. Um, I, I think, you know, it, it just in, it intuitively makes more sense for me that this actually is how it works. Um, that said, um, it, it then raises a whole bunch of really depressing questions when, you, when you're looking at um, developing world governments um, because if they if they are being kind of strong armed into into debt by China um, then that's one problem but the current problem seems a, seems a lot more pernicious in the sense that 
they both seem to lack the capacity to actually make sure that the projects they're paying for are actually going to work. And then at the same time, there's there's all of these incentives to keep all of their negotiations uh, opaque, um, you know, because both those governments and the, the companies involved have lots of incentives to not want people to poke around too much in the details of the loan which means that the civil society and the populations in places like Africa are just screwed, you know, kind of because they, they never hear what, the, what the, the details of the loan is until it's too late. Then they're on the hook to repay a loan for which their own governments didn't do sufficient kind of due diligence around. So, you know, it, it raises then a lot of questions about what countries like Africa or places like Africa are supposed to be doing in order to ensure better loans. And it also take into account that a lot of African leaders have very, very short-term political agendas at, at play here. So people like Macky Sall in Senegal, uh, certainly Joseph Kabila, the former president of the Democratic Republic of Congo, saw the opportunity to use Chinese infrastructure building as a way to win presidential elections. So they're not thinking about the debt 10, 20, 30 years down the road. They're thinking about what do I need to do to get an upper hand against my rivals in the next cycle or now. And I think that also plays into it. Let's also not kind of dismiss the the role of African corruption. So we've talked about Chinese corruption in the Belt and Road, but African corruption also plays a role here. So all of that together, as Mark pointed out, creates a very, very toxic mix. Uh, we didn't unfortunately have time to get to his recommendations because he didn't just complain. He actually did point out some recommendations and uh, not surprisingly, what he said was he believes there should be, you know, more transparency. And that's what you said. You know, sunshine cleans everything. So he did talk about how, you know, economically risky projects, you know, need to have that transparency in order to be able to make them more feasible and also to evaluate whether or not they are worth the risk. So that is it for this discussion on Belt and Road. We're going to kind of take a break from it. After a while, we're doing two or three shows trying to give you guys some different perspectives on this because so much of the narrative coming out of the international press, uh, for the most part, is, I think, very one-sided on this. And again, it's not necessarily partisan, but it is, for us, what we're trying to do is show you that there are very, very different ways to interpret what Belt and Road is and the implications for it around the world. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Uh, Copus and I will be back again next week with another edition. Until then, thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gorbas at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.